I have to be delusional enough to think people are going to listen to this. It's thunderstorming outside. There's lightning. Hit me with it. Come on. How smart can you be when you have huge mantids? Okay, he, him. Go put your pronouns and go sit in the corner. I'll take care of this. It's just common sense. Why, hello there, Mr. Biohacker. How are you doing today? Doing well, Connor. How about you? I'm doing awesome, and I'm so, so pumped. So for those who may not know, somehow, can you just give a really brief intro about your background and what you tweet about on Twitter? Hey, guys, I'm Bowtie Biohacker, resident biohacking, fitness, and longevity autist of the Bowtie Jungle. Started studying biology, chemistry, and pharmacology almost 20 years ago because I wanted to take my physical performance, mental performance, and quality of life to the next level. Since then, I've tried a bunch of crazy shit so you don't have to, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of my insights today. So maybe we should just hop right in. So the first one is just what people are mainly concerned about, which is weight loss. So how can a regular person get fit without injecting crazy substances like our celebrities do? Yeah, so that's really easy. And the answer is quite boring Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. You just have to be relatively lean and have a little bit of muscle mass on you. Mm -hmm. So that pretty much looks like eating healthy most of the time, 80% of the time, hitting the gym at least three times a week and doing a little bit of resistance training and getting some steps in, you know, 10,000 steps, you walk a few miles a day, you don't sit on your ass all day. It kind of just happens by accident. Absolutely. And now, because I'm interested, what can you tell us about what the celebrities are injecting themselves with? So like Wagovi, semaglutide, what is that doing to them? (laughs) This is a very fun topic. And yeah, it's really blown up in the past year. I actually uh, first dabbled with this two years ago. So if you haven't heard of it by now, semaglutide, that's what celebrities like Kim K and Elon Musk are using. And it's supposedly the magic weight loss pill or injection rather. Although fun fact, there is a pill form of semaglutide now that kind of works as good as the injection. But what these drugs are called, you know, there's other types like liraglutide and duaglutide. Essentially they are GLP-1 agonists. So what happens is they activate the GLP-1 receptors in your body. And this leads to a few things happening and creates this chain of events that ultimately makes you not hungry. So when you take that shot, it's hitting the beta cells in the pancreas and causing insulin secretion, which is bringing your blood sugar down. But it's also, it's making you more sensitive to leptin which is the uh, satiety hormone right so if you're more sensitive to that you're going to feel full and then to compound that it's also slowing down gastric emptying so if you eat or drink something you're going to stay full for longer and because of that you're not even going to be able to eat anywhere near as much as you used to so it's kind of making you lose weight by making you not want food would you recommend it to someone who is not a celebrity, like a normal person? It highly depends. Like, the reason I used it was because I was already quite shredded, right? I was below 10% body fat, mm-hmm. just lose a couple extra pounds. And when you're that lean and you're stripped down to almost your essential body fat, your body tries to fight really hard against losing those last couple pounds. So it does ramp up your appetite. So if you're going for that and you're aware of the risks, sure. Um, As far as if a regular person who's overweight or obese should use it to lose weight, I'm leaning towards being against it, even though that's what it's prescribed for these days, because it's not a replacement for the basics, right? Not Mm -hmm. stuff in your way, eating relatively healthy foods, getting around and moving. Right. If you don't do those things, you're not necessarily extending your life that much or at all. And two, these drugs, they don't work forever. So if you need those just to lose weight when you're already obese, when it's literally the easiest it's ever going to be to lose weight, what's going to happen if you lose, you know, 20 to 40 pounds, you still got a hundred or more to go and the drugs no longer work. 
you're just going to balloon back up and then you're completely out of options. So I think most people should probably stay away from that, especially because we don't really know really what happens mm-hmm. when you're taking this all the time and still eating junk processed food and not moving. Uh, we do know that it does cause pancreatic damage, or it can rather, but you know, it'll be interesting to see what the long-term effects of a massive amount of population taking this for aesthetic purposes ends up being. Are there any chemicals or supplements that you would recommend to someone solely for the purpose of weight loss? So it really depends on what phase of the weight loss you are. If you're already like pretty overweight, you're not going to need anything because you can almost lose a pound of fat a day. The more body you have, not only the higher your metabolism is, but the more physical amount of body fat you're able to burn per day. So that's why I'm the biggest loser. You sometimes see people lose their pound a day because they're so obese. Mm-hmm. At really like high levels of obesity, you're not going to need supplements. Same goes for if you're just plain overweight. Probably don't need anything. A few things that might help that I would feel comfortable recommending is black coffee. Now, the reason for that is not the caffeine. In fact, decaf works just as well for this, but the alkaloids present in coffee actually have, some of them have an appetite suppressing effect. So you can have your morning caffeine and then in the afternoon sip on decaf, and that's gonna make you a lot less hungry. So it's gonna be easier to adhere to a diet. Um, another thing too, silymos fiber, that's essentially a very expandable form of fiber. So if you put, you take one tablespoon, for example, mix it with water, chug that, it's going to turn into like 10 times that volume in your stomach because it expands when it comes in contact with water. Mm-hmm. If you do that with your meals, you're going to feel full. And it's also great for your metabolic health, your cholesterol, your digestive system. So that's something that everybody can always take. That's healthy for you, but it's also going to help you lose weight. Very cool. I used to drink, I still drink coffee, but I would really drink coffee when I was intermittent fasting. And it really helped prolong the the window that I could wait to have food. What's your take on intermittent fasting? Yeah, intermittent fasting can be great. Uh, especially if you're the type of person that it helps then stick to the diet, right? If yeah. you have your allotted calories for the day, there's a lot of people that are more likely to stick to it if they do intermittent fasting. For them, it's great. Um, I think it's been overhyped a little bit, but there has been some recent research showing that it does increase insulin sensitivity more than a non-investing diet that contains the same amount of calories and same macronutrient profile. So uh, that's another benefit. Yeah. So is the main benefit though, the reduction in calories, just because you're in the shorter window, is that the real benefit of it? Yeah. It makes it hard to eat too much when you only have a small window to eat. Yeah. And a lot of people find that it also decreases their appetite once they've been doing it for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I relate to that. It really worked for me. Um, I can't do it now because my schedule is just kind of crazy. So I could not really, you know, delay because I might not get food the rest of the day. But I, I really like doing it. Yeah, I'm actually a big fan. That's how I stay lean year round most of the time. It's There's also something to be said about its benefits for productivity. Mm-hmm. Having meals in the morning or the day tends to make you a little foggy. Not only because the carbohydrates and the gluconeogenesis making you a little sleepy and foggy, but you're also taking blood away from your brain and it's going to your digestive system. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and also when you're hungry, you have more catecholamines like dopamine and uh, adrenaline, more adrenaline firing. So it's kind of like a natural Adderall. You could look at it as. So fasting has been a huge topic lately on Twitter. What are some of the benefits from fasting? You just described how like natural Adderall because the blood is not going into your digestive system. What are some of the other benefits of fasting? 
And what is a feasible implementation of fasting that you would recommend to, again, a normal person? Like every two weeks you don't eat for a whole day? Is that what your recommendation would be? Something like that. Yeah. So there's really a lot of ways, different ways to do it. And it depends on the person and their goals. Personally, what I like to do is once a month, I'll do anywhere from a two to four day fast. And the benefits of that is not only do you lose a lot of fat, but you're more likely to keep your muscle if you're dieting through fasting than if you're just doing a low calorie diet. There's a lot of muscle sparing mechanisms that come to play. One of them being increase in human growth hormone while you're fasting. Uh, this causes you to, you know, retain a lot more muscle than say, if you're just eating 500 or a thousand calories and starving yourself, which by the way, if you did that, not only would you lose a lot of muscle, but you'd be hungry and feel like complete shit all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's probably nothing good about doing a low calorie diet, but when you do no calories, there's a lot of beneficial things that happen in your body. You're resensitizing to insulin. Uh, about 24 to 48 hours in, you get into ketosis. There's also a process called autophagy that begins. Auto means self, phagy means eat. So essentially, you are eating yourself. Uh, but what's really happening is your body's breaking down damaged cells, misfolded proteins, and other things that are otherwise causing you harm, inflammation, even cancer cells, right? So that is preventing future disease and kind of helping repair your body. And all while you're doing that, you're improving your metabolic health, your heart health, and losing a bunch of fat. So you can't go wrong. Um, Obviously, it's good to uh, have your water intake on point, drink a little bit more, make sure you're getting your electrolytes because while you're fasting, you start pissing all those out and you can get Mm -hmm. dehydrated. Um, I, I don't recommend dry fasting. I, <laughs> I hope this guy today on Twitter was kidding, but he said he was 72 hours into a dry fast, and that's mm-hmm. about what it takes to like die from, you know, not drinking water. So, what on earth is there any benefit to going a day without water? I can't imagine that there are. Perhaps, like mental toughness benefits, because that's just pure pain. Yeah, that's just not convincing to me. I got to be honest. um but yeah that's some of the people you see on twitter crazy did you see that fitness influencer who did the so-called 40 days without eating and he streamed it oh Connor murphy yeah yeah well do you think that was real that was definitely real um he live streamed the whole thing and he lost i if i remember correctly 40 pounds so he really didn't eat anything and he lasted 40 days but he drank water yeah wow yeah, full Jesus mode on that one. Yeah, seriously. Um, I was going to say. And I, and I believe that was the whole inspiration behind it. But 40-day fasts are interesting. Um, they, they say, like, safely you could do around 20, 21 days. I've never gone more than five and a half, I believe. But after a certain point, you do start losing muscle because <laughs> your body has nothing else to fuel itself off of. So that's why I like to keep it, like, two to four days, maybe five. And the main benefits from a two to four day fast is the fat loss. It's the brain clarity. Are there any anti-aging benefits to it? Yeah, absolutely. So when you're fasting, there's a major system called mTOR that's shut down uh, through AMPK activation. And essentially, one of the things that does is it stimulates IGF-1 protein synthesis cell division and proliferation right so it's essentially slowing down the process where your cells multiply and grow because you only have so many cycles of cell rebirth and multiplication before they go what's called senescent which is essentially uh they're damaged and you can see this in old people a lot that's why they have a lot of random pains joint pains, inflammation, you know, their skin looks kind of weird. Their organs don't work properly. They have a lot of senescent cells. So you're slowing down the process of that happening when you're fasting because they're not really proliferating anywhere near as fast as they would be 
if you're fueling that fire from food through protein consumption, which activates mTOR, or carb consumption, which stimulates insulin secretion, both of those two things are responsible for that. I never understood that it's slowed the process of the cell growth, but that that makes a ton of sense when you describe it that way. So what are some of the other things that we do that age us without us really knowing it? Yeah, absolutely. So besides all the eating, I just want to make one thing clear for all my followers listening, because I have a lot of gym bros and bodybuilders following. Um, And I'm guilty of this too. But the bodybuilding lifestyle is basically the opposite of anti-aging. It ages you faster. Eating all that protein and tearing down your muscles and promoting growth in every way, you're going to hit those that senescent period a lot quicker. It does anti-age you in a certain way, like being lean and strong and having good insulin sensitivity. That's going to reduce your mortality. But at the same time, you are aging yourself. Um, so besides that, for the non-lifters listening, common things that age us, uh, stimulants. So that might be your coffee, your Starbucks addiction, or you know the, the vape, nicotine, however you like to consume that. Your Adderall you take every day because they told you you have ADHD and now you need to do hard drugs every day of your life in order to be normal. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that's pumping up your adrenaline is going to age you quicker. Adrenaline, while it's very beneficial, is also excitotoxic, uh, which just means it excites the cells to a point of death. Uh, so that's one thing to consider. The less stimulants you use, the healthier your body and brain are going to be, the more youthful appearance you'll have. Sun, obviously, like there's so many benefits to the sun, but if you're getting sunburned or even just spending a lot of time out, you're damaging your skin cells. That's a recipe, you know, at the very least for wrinkles and not ideal looking skin when you get a little bit older. But uh, in the worst case, you could get basal cell carcinoma or even worse, melanoma, which are essentially, uh, you know, two types of skin cancers. Yeah. Not sleeping. And I'm very guilty of this, but when you don't get enough sleep or you don't get high enough quality sleep, you're missing out on that deep sleep, which is where the majority of the recovery, regeneration, restoration happens. Right. I, I struggle with this so much. I didn't even sleep last night and I have no idea why. So why do you think I can't sleep if you had any ideas? So the inability to sleep at night, and I've dealt with hundreds of people over this little career of mine that have had insomnia, me being patient number one, mm-hmm. the inability to sleep at night, almost always, but not always, the fact that you're not active enough during the day. So the first thing I ask is, how many steps are you getting per day? How much cardio have you done? What, what physical activity have you done today? Oh, you asked me? Uh, well, I'm thinking about yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday, I did a lot. Yesterday, I went to Pilates, and I got 10,000 steps in. Okay, so that's pretty decent. Did you get sunlight in the morning? No. See, that's very important. That mm-hmm. sets your circadian rhythm for the day. So the sunlight in the morning will affect how much melatonin you have at night, which is going to be very important for getting you to sleep. But I realize that's not the whole picture, right? It will make a big difference if you start doing that. Mm-hmm. And by the way, even if it's gray out, because I know it's the winter, even if it's gray out, you, it's still exponentially better to walk outside for 30 minutes and get that gray light than it would be to use any of the artificial lights that purportedly, you know, help with wintertime depression or vitamin D. Grimhood told me the same thing. He said, I have to get light into my eyes in the morning at noon and then around sunset just so I fix my circadian rhythm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that'll that move the needle quite a bit, mm-hmm. but there could still be other factors, right? Like, I would want to know when the, the last time in the day you had coffee, for example. I have two cups every day, one at like nine, one at like 11. And when do you try to go to bed? 
Uh, I try to go to bed early, which I think is part of the problem. Like, I try to force myself to go before 10 because I know I have to get up. When you start getting frustrated or the, you know, just thinking about not being able to sleep starts uh, giving you anxiety, you mm -hmm. kind of set it in this chain of events that's going to boost your fight or flight and your stress hormones in your brain and that itself will prevent you. But another thing is depending on your genetics and, you know, the CYP enzyme content in your body, you might be a slow metabolizer of caffeine mm. and you might want to have coffee for what, 10 to 12 hours before you try to get I, I do think there may be a genetic component because my dad, like, he notoriously cannot sleep. It's also from, like, chronic stress. Um, like, he had a really bad commute my whole life, like, two hours in the car each way, and it ruined his sleep, even to this day. So I do think part of it's, like, the stressful environment, but also, like, there may be a genetic tendency for being insane. Yeah, absolutely. At, at the end of the day, you might have you know, high excitatory signaling, glutamate, um, adrenaline, mm. and that could be due to insanity, like all of us in the Bowtie jungle have. Right. Uh, it could be, you know, things that happened in the past that you haven't gotten over yet. And there's certain uh, genes that convert your glutamate, which is the excitatory neurotransmitter, into GABA, which is the inhibitory neurotransmitter that helps you relax. Uh, it's very important for getting to sleep, but also sleep quality. And if you have a polymorphism in that gene, you might not be converting your glutamate to GABA, and that could be affecting your sleep too. So there's definitely something to be said about using supplements. And you have a genetic factor causing this, or even just an external factor like stress. Mm -hmm. I think it's a genetic tendency to be neurotic. Is That's what my thought is. Um, and then trying to force yourself to fall asleep. I've noticed when I like focus on other things, I do get sleepy and then I will go to sleep. But it's when I'm like, you need to go to sleep because you have such a big day tomorrow that it doesn't happen. So. Yeah, that's never going to work. I suggest you try driving or doing important work because I don't know about you, but those are the only two times that... I feel like sleeping when I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> so true. <laughs> that would be interesting. I'd love to get a copy of your entire genome and see what I can find. <laughs> I'll give it to you. The government already has it, so might as well give it to everyone, you know? So That's actually something I was going to talk about today. Did you know for the last several decades, especially in the U.S., every newborn's DNA is collected and sent to government labs? I had no idea until Grimhood told me I could send my DNA into Ancestry because they already have it. So you might as well figure out where you're from because it's like there's nothing to lose now. I had no idea. Yeah, exactly. Or uh, 23 me. Yeah. They'll, they'll give you a very detailed report on your genetic makeup and what polymorphisms you have. And you can use that information to potentially save your life or you know, extend it by several decades, or at the very least, improve your quality of life and avoid, you know, things like chronic fatigue, inflammation, and all that bad stuff we don't want to have. Yeah. Um, so something that I've always wondered how much of a genetic component is involved is your IQ. So what's your take on that? Is it completely determined by your genetics? Can you train your IQ? I'm not sure we're allowed to talk about this. If IQ is genetic? Yeah, yeah. They, they stopped studying that in the 80s. And uh, I know people have gotten banned from YouTube for suggesting it. I mean, I think the official narrative is that it's not genetic at all. It's the only thing about us that's not genetic. And it's all um, a function of your environment when you're a kid and um, your, your privilege. Then why do all the Asians have really high IQs? I plead the fifth. <laughs> but is it possible, do you think, whether or not it's genetically determined, we won't, we won't comment on that here today, but how can you increase it? What steps can you take? 
They say if you were to Google right now, can you increase your IQ? They would say no, you can't. Um, but I don't particularly believe in that, right? So one, it's objectively false from the fact that if you were to take enough IQ tests and learn how to solve those problems, you'd increase your IQ. Would that make you smarter? Probably not. Yeah. It's not like knowing how to take those tests or solve those types of problems is going to translate into the real world. But I do think, you know, you could improve your pattern recognition, your spatial reasoning, your verbal fluency, in other things that do matter in the real world through not only lifestyle interventions and dietary interventions, but through chemistry. So for instance, what kind of chemicals or supplements can I take to, uh, to improve that? Yeah, so one way that you can use an over-the-counter supplement to increase acetylcholine in the brain is alpha-GPC. Alpha-GPC actually metabolizes into choline, but that's not why it's so great. The main mechanism of its action is it actually causes the release of stored acetylcholine in your neurons. So when you take it, you get a flood of acetylcholine in the brain. This is great for acute use when you really want to boost and focus memory and mental performance but if you use it frequently you're going to run into tolerance issues because since it releases all that stored acetylcholine you get depleted so if you are taking alpha gpc it's good to you know only do that a couple times a week when you really need it and to also either supplement with a cvp choline or eat a bunch of eggs so you're replenishing that choline in between so I eat eggs in the morning and I've noticed a considerable difference than when I would eat like a carbohydrate. So why do I get that brain fog from carbs in the morning? Yeah, absolutely. It's because carbs, what's going to happen is you're going to elevate your blood glucose concentrations first, which is going to set a cascade into play that ultimately causes uh, your pancreas to secrete insulin. That in the process is going to make you sleepy. Um, there's also something inflammatory about that process. And uh, the whole time, too, when you woke up in a fasted state, you were somewhat in ketosis. Uh, the brain does work better in ketones. Once you eat those carbs, you knock yourself out. So when you add all those factors and probably consider there's still things that we don't fully understand, uh, it's pretty easy to see why you know, the carbs for some thing of the day might not be the best choice if you're going for mental performance. Mm -hmm. When you have eggs, that's just fat. That's not going to really spike your blood glu glucose too much or initiate an insulin release. So just talking about, I'm just referencing the earlier part of our conversation about fasting as well. So you wouldn't recommend like a low calorie diet, but eating in the middle of the day can make you really sleepy at lunchtime even too even if you eat like a salad like sometimes it can have an effect where you just eat a lot and you don't have that mental clarity do you think there's any truth to the omad diet where you just eat dinner you can still get the calories that you need but maybe you don't have that brain fog throughout the day yeah it'll work for a lot of people if you're really focused on lean muscle mass if you're a bigger guy you're into bodybuilding and having an elite physique, that might not be the best route to go because you're not maximizing muscle protein synthesis. But if you're a regular person or you just want to look like, you know, Brad Pitt from Fight Club, mm -hmm. right? Pretty lean, pretty muscular, but not huge by any stretch of the imagination. OMAD is perfectly fine. So I know that's something my brother, one of the rabbit holes he was going down. He's also down this rabbit hole that vegetables are like, bad or, or not even that they're bad they're just like useless and you should just eat meat and so he got the liver he did the whole thing but he's like really anti-vegetable and i just want to know is there what's going on with that yeah so one thing i've learned is that there's nothing that's purely good especially from a dietary context every food that's good for you all has things about it that's bad for you and there's, there's no perfect diet. There's going to be a drawback to everything. Um, everything does have chemicals in it that are not good for you, as well as chemicals that are good for you. In fact, the only thing that's really 
not killing you in some sort of way is fasting. Um, if, if only we could fast and just never eat, we'd probably be able to live forever. Uh, but yeah, back to vegetables, they do contain stuff that, you know, can harm you. Um, whether that's certain defense chemicals that can be inflammatory or oxalates, which can cause kidney stones. Um, you kind of have to pick and choose the downsides of your dietary model. Uh, I know when you go carnivore, and I've done carnivore for almost a year, so I'd like to think I have the right to bash it a little bit from a fair perspective. When you do carnivore, you aren't getting as many micronutrients as you could if you had some plants in. You're definitely not getting as much fiber in, right, which isn't all that great for your digestive system. And while your inflammation is low, you are going to have outrageously high cholesterol, which I don't think cholesterol is the direct cause of heart disease. But having, you know, three times the normal upper normal limit of LDL certainly can be good. And we've seen this. I can't forget the gentleman's name on Twitter, but he was like 45 years old, in great shape, looked very healthy. He looked like he was in his 30s. And he got that way through just, you know, some exercise in the carnivore diet. Well, he went to his cardiologist after having a bunch of chest pain and found out that, you know, one of his arteries was like 98% blocked. Oh my God. So there's, there's definitely some truth to high cholesterol not being ideal. Uh, it's not the whole picture, you know, uh, systemic and cardiovascular inflammation plays a big role. Right. If those are inflamed and being damaged, you're going to have those lipoproteins filling up those those micro injuries on the vascular system or the arteries and clogging them. Uh, there's also like insulin resistance and metabolic health playing a big role in heart disease. From what I understand, like half of people that die from heart attacks have high cholesterol and half that don't. So we know that's not the full picture. Um, but yeah, that's why carnivore isn't purely healthy and um to keep it simple i think the best way to go is to just kind of eat what we've always ate which was you know very a very animal-based diet but we also had some fruits and vegetables in yeah and just a severe reduction most likely in the western the, the western diet has way too many carbohydrates relative to both ancient humans and what is ideal yeah not only that but the carbohydrates are so refined that they're effectively sugar like our is nothing like the bread in the old days it, it digests a lot faster spikes your blood sugar a lot higher and does the same to your insulin somehow we've still managed to psyop the whole world into thinking that carbs are the most important micro or macronutrient and fats are the devil and you should absolutely stay away from them when basically if you just turn the food pyramid upside down it gives you a lot more uh, optimal of a diet for the general population than the way it currently is i don't think the way it currently is is good for anybody just moving along into some other topics that you like to talk about that i really want to touch on so there's this bit about hormone optimization that I think is really interesting. So I'm sure a lot of people listening or just guys in general, there's a concern about low testosterone. And I did a bit of research about this for a video. It's really dismal, to be honest. And there seem to be a lot of different factors, potentially the environment, what you eat, your lifestyle, if it's more sedentary, all those things contribute to low testosterone. Um, what do you think is the cause of the low testosterone that is facing men all over the world. Yeah, so this is a topic that's very important to me. It really hits home. And I work with so many guys who are suffering from this right now. And I think that testosterone is being attacked from every angle and every way possible. Uh, you know, everything from our diet, and our activity to even just men not being able to be with other men and act like men and the psychological implications of that because there are studies showing that you know even being with the boys and winning together and competing with each other 
plays a huge role on your total testosterone levels. It can even bump them up several hundred points. Um, mm. uh, an example of this is a friend of mine's father who's in his 60s and he was at 600 total tests, which is actually pretty good. It's probably better than the average 21 year old right now, which mm. is quite sad. But he was at 600. And then he started playing chess with other people and winning. Next time he got his blood work, it was in the 800s. There's like the social aspect. I think the, the most common reason is probably just the diet, the lack of activity, and definitely um, body fat mm. or uh, body composition. That's probably the number one, especially with all the guys that I've worked with. We've been able to double or even triple their testosterone just by getting their body fat lowered. Because what happens, and this might be too much, too big of a rabbit hole to go down right now, but I'll try to keep it simple. <laughs> what happens when you have high body fat is there's an enzyme that's expressed in your fat cells called aromatase, right? So what this enzyme does is it converts testosterone into estradiol, which is estrogen. Uh, Estrogen is actually very important for men. We need this for everything for our heart and brain health, our joint health. Like our requirements for estrogen are very real. You always want to have some. But when you have a lot of body fat, you're getting too much of that testosterone converted into estrogen. And what happens when you have too much estrogen in your body as a man is it starts hitting the estrogen receptors in your hypothalamus, right? So when that happens, your hypothalamus stops sending a hormone called GnRH to your pituitary, right? So when that stops, then your pituitary stops sending these two hormones called LH and FSH to your balls. So then your balls stop producing testosterone, which then makes you fatter. It makes you want to work out less. It makes you want to compete less. It makes you want to do all the things all the masculine shit that you're supposed to be doing, which creates more of a, you know, negative cycle and until, you know, your levels are plummeted into the ground. So it, it all goes back to body fat. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge issue. Um, one thing that fat guys can do if they want to do immediately know how much their body composition is affecting their test levels, um, and have some immediate relief would be to take an aromatase inhibitor, of course, under the supervision of a doctor or perhaps even one of the over-counter ones like erinacin. And what that would do is lower their estrogen levels to something like 20 to 29 biograms per milliliter, which they, from there, they should see, you know, some instant weight loss, some more strength, libido, focus, and they should probably see their testosterone levels looking pretty normal at that point. So that's going to be huge and make the biggest impact. So you mentioned that you coach a lot of guys that are suffering from low testosterone. At what point do you recommend to someone that they should supplement their testosterone? Most of the time, it's going to be just like the activity and the diet and the body fat. So if you do the AI experiment, you know that, oh, yeah, I could have totally great testosterone levels if I lowered my estrogen. Then it's just like, okay, bro, start lifting, lose your fat. Mm -hmm. uh, take the AI under doctor supervision in the meantime for some immediate relief, but fix everything else so you don't need that long-term and you're good. Um, if you have primary or secondary hypogonadism, hypogonadism which is going to mean either your balls don't work or they're damaged in the case of primary or your hypothalamus hypothalamus or pituitary gland are busted in some sort of way, which would be secondary. Mm -hmm. Something that you might have an actual case for supplementing with TRT. Another reason you might want to is just because you want to be unnatural. You want the benefits of high testosterone. Maybe you're a CEO, maybe you're an entrepreneur, high profile person that doesn't get to sleep much can't always be perfect with the diet and training schedule has a lot to do, uh, which are, you know, that lifestyle is not conducive to having high testosterone. Uh, in that case, if you want to accept the health risks of TRT, 
and always have high testosterone, no matter what your sleep schedule or lifestyle is looking like, so you can work harder and feel good all the time, uh, then, you know, that's a risk that you have to think about. And if you're okay with that, there's plenty of doctors and clinics that will give it to you for that purpose too. Same thing if you want to get big and take steroid cycles and instead of coming off and shrinking and feeling like shit, you just go down to a tier two dose afterward. So you can kind of keep your gains and feel decent uh, while you wait for your next cycle. So yeah, it really depends on your situation and your risk tolerance and it's ultimately a personal choice. It's a, it's a, li- a lifelong decision is my understanding. Is that true? Yes and no. So let's say that your natural testosterone production was perfectly fine and you just wanted to get on TRT so you could blast and cruise steroid cycles or so you could work 18 hours a day and party hard every once in a while and still have great T levels. Uh, Let's say you ran it for a few years you used some uh, fertility support like ACG or HMD, and then you used a proper recovery for a protocol. It wouldn't be that crazy for you to go back to your levels that you had. You might not, but it's definitely quite possible to come off of it. Um, but if you had like an actual um, problem with your testicles or your hypothalamus pituitary gland, if you came off TRT, you would just go back to your normal shitty level, whatever those were. Right. Possibly a little bit lower. Yeah. But generally, yes, it, it's long because once you get on, you're not going to want to get off. Right. It, it's just too good. Yeah. So every guy I have on this show basically says the biggest problem facing society is low testosterone. So if we got, let's say, every young man into the gym, do you think that would cure or solve like 85% of the problem? So there is an environmental component as well, but the main thing is the body fat. Yeah, so I don't think it would solve that much of the problem. The environmental problem should not be downplayed while the body fat reduction and the lifestyle can help a lot of people. They might not achieve optimal levels when they're being bombarded with, uh, you know, estrogenic compounds and endocrine disruptors. And, you know, that comes from everything that's in your tap water, that's in the canned drinks and foods that you eat. It's even in your polyester clothes and your detergents in your fragrances in the deodorant use. It's everywhere. So if we got them low body fat, we got them sleeping right, eating right, in their sunlight um that would that would move the needle there's also like the psychological component so they would have to be doing masculine shit you know being with the boys pursuing women uh not jerking off all day not watching netflix all day competing you know maybe participating in a sport maybe even a combat sport all those play a big role too so there would have to be cultural changes as well, because we live in a society that tries to suppress masculine behavior. Yeah, absolutely. That That's a given. I totally agree with that. Um, do you have a reason why you think so? Well, a society where masculine behavior is suppressed is the easiest society to control. Could you imagine how the last couple of years would have played out if it was full of high T guys? High testosterone men, as as well as, you know, autistic people, they have a tendency to be disagreeable, think for themselves. They're they're more likely to form their own opinion and be secure with their own opinion. And I believe this is an evolutionary mechanism that even dates back from before, you know, human times. Throughout all of our existence, we were parts of tribes, right? And you had to go along with the views and opinions and the agenda of the tribe. And if you didn't, well, you had to be prepared for battle, right? If you went against the leader of the tribe, you had to be prepared to fight some people. Um, So instinctively, I think we all know that there's conflict ahead 
if we disagree with the, the mainstream narrative in society. When you have low testosterone, you don't feel like you're ready for battle. You feel like you're prey. You feel like, um, yeah, you can't overcome anything. You can't fight. You can't protect. It really drives all masculine types of behaviors from that standpoint alone. These last couple of years would have played out so differently if men had high testosterone and they were comfortable with asking questions, being skeptical, saying no, you know, maybe even flipping over par- cars and other stuff. <laughs> it is so fascinating that something as simple as a hormonal component in your body is having an incredible effect on society. And you could say the same thing for women with birth control. So it's a hormonal pill that has cascading impacts through society. And I just, it's an incredible feat, though it's a bad thing, of course. So in terms of the effect of birth control on women, is it as bad as people say it is, in your opinion? I think it's actually worse because there's a lot of negative effects that are are being talked about. And this is something that's been studied for decades, right? For those of you that don't know, women tend to have two different preferences in men, and it kind of depends on the time of the month. So one phenotype of men they'll choose is the more masculine, Chad, alpha guy who might just pump and dump. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is usually during ovulation. And the other phenotype of guy is more of like the beta provider that she can get to stick around and take care of the kids and provide resources. So, um, yeah, like I mentioned, during ovulation, women will go with the alpha. Uh, but when they're on combined oral contra- contraceptives or progestins, they essentially castrate themselves and they miss out on that ovulatory cycle. So then they're in that uh, perpetual state of, you know, seeking the beta. Really? That's wild. I had no idea about that. Yeah, the other thing too is like, these contraceptives annihilate total and free testosterone levels in women, which despite popular belief, it plays a very important role in their physiology and psychology, just like estrogen does in men. So... For someone who's been on birth control for like a decade, is there long-term effects after that? Or is it something where as soon as you get off of it, the the effect, the change is immediate? No, no, there's uh, there's definitely permanent effects, both on the brain and body, of course, the endocrine system. Your hormones may never return to normal because you've essentially shut them down. You can view birth control as, you know, the same thing as guys taking certain steroids and never regaining function of their testicles and pituitary gland. The longer they're on birth control, the higher they are at risk for certain things. So I'll go through the list. There was a recent study that examined data going all the way back to 1996 that shows that birth control use is positively associated with an increase in suicide attempts. Mm. And that's almost never talked about. But it's certainly having a negative impact on the psychology of women. And even so, when they get off, you know, they're not returning to a normal mentally healthy state. Uh, But another thing that we've been finding out over the past few years is the cancer risk that's associated with birth control that increases the longer that you're on it. They don't tell you that when you you go in as a young woman. Um, I've had problems with my skin. I've talked about this before, but one of the recommendations was just go on the birth control pill, even though there was no reason for me to go on it, if you know what I mean. They're just over-prescribing it, to say the least. Oh, yeah. I mean, your risk of breast cancer, cervical cancer, just to name a few, they're going to go up. Also, your risk of thrombotic events is going to go up because they increase clotting factors. Uh, So there's a lot of health risks, but uh, even though I'm shitting on birth control, it'd be unfair for me to leave out that it seems to protect against colon cancer, so that might be the one good thing about it. However, my counterpoint, he wants to use that 
little soundbite as a way to justify birth control. There's nothing more preventative uh, of colon cancer than adequate calcium, magnesium, and vitamin D intake, along with a healthy gut and generally healthy lifestyle. You really think you're going to get a reply, guy, saying that women should go on birth control to prevent colon cancer? Oh, I know. These reply <laughs> guys are insulting. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a new one. I'm not going to lie. That's pretty funny. So we've just been discussing how like hormonal changes have such a huge impact on your body. Would you say that hormonal deficiencies or excess are often the underlying issue for a lot of health problems that go untreated or just treated in the wrong way because they're not fixing that underlying hormonal problem. Yeah, you could definitely say that. Although I think a lot of these hormonal problems are the result of unhealthy lifestyle and diet that's causing these other problems, right? I think, like you mentioned, chronic fatigue, I think systemic inflammation and Insulin resistance are two of the big things that are driving that in most cases. And that all goes back to inadequate diet, exercise, sleep, and things like that. So I wouldn't say the hormones are necessarily causing a lot of these problems. Rather, they're another symptom of the, the terrible shit that we're doing. How can you tell if your hormones are all out of whack? Do you need to go get your blood tested? Yeah, if you want to like truly know what's going on and you want to quantify everything, then you're going to want to get a blood test. It's actually not that expensive. And for a lot of people, getting it done privately and paying out of pocket would actually be cheaper than going through insurance. Uh, and the other thing about insurance too is that, you know, the medical system, at least in the U.S., is really not geared towards prevention mm -hmm. it's kind of more of a reactive thing so it's really hard to get blood work done just because you're not feeling great and you want to know exactly what's going on in your body you have to actually have some things go wrong for them to want to justify you know pulling blood because insurance companies they don't want to pay for it and the other thing that's going on is that when a doctor orders blood work and you get it from a hospital, they charge like five plus times more than it it does or th than it should cost. So because of that, like the whole system is designed to avoid people getting blood work or, you know, MRIs, x-rays, CT scans, stuff, ultrasound, stuff like that. It's to, they want to avoid testing because the hospitals charge the insurance companies so much and insurance companies are already charging too much. They can't really get away with charging too much more. Um, and they're not also, nobody's going to give up any of their margins either. So it's a scam system. Uh, not, not that any of the free healthcare countries are any better. Like you're probably not going to have very much luck getting the blood work you want done there without having a serious problem. So uh, for most people, private blood work from a website like jasonhealth.com. I'm not sponsored or affiliated in any way, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, but they're the cheapest. That, that'll usually, you know, get you pretty far. Do you think the the medical system is a little bit too far gone? So I was talking about this with Grimhood too. The, the incentives are all wrong. You come in and you're having an issue and their response is oh. drugs or surgery, essentially, not like healing the underlying problem. Do you think that's just the way it's set up? Is there any way to fix it? Or do we just need to rely on autistic anonymous cartoons? Yeah, it would definitely be a hard thing to fix. It's a very complex issue because you have a whole system that's kind of putting profits first. So we're not getting preventative treatment. We're not even getting prescribed the best of drugs and surgeries. Like, first of all, there are times when you want to take medication, right? I'm not going to be some bullshit hippie woo-woo to say that there's herbs and spices you can take for everything. Sometimes you do need drugs when shit goes wrong. Uh, but even in that case, we're not getting prescribed the most effective drugs. 
right? Maybe if the most effective drug currently that exists is in patent and it's very profitable, we'll get it. But sometimes they're not in patent anymore, right? And all the new stuff that's come out is worse for you or less effective. And those new things get prescribed because the doctors are essentially lobbied by pharmaceutical reps to prescribe that instead. Um, and then there's also the fact that, you know, stuff like bioidentical hormone treatments or, you know, natural herbs and supplements that are better don't make any money either. So they're not going to tell you to take that. Same with the whole FDA approval process, which caused, which, which costs like hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, there's a lot of compounds that would cure a lot of diseases and help a lot of people that aren't FDA approved because they would be too effective and kind of cannibalize other big pharma products. So those are never even brought to market. And of course, doctors can't prescribe non-FDA approved shit because we somehow allow this one organization that's full of people who used to work on the executive boards of big pharma or maybe still do. Uh, and they're allowed to decide what's safe for us to take and what's not safe for us to take. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, it's anybody with critical thinking or a little bit of autism or some high T levels knows that that's a scam. Uh, but you say that to the general public and they'll look at you like you're wearing some tinfoil hat. Like they be, they're so shocked by the idea that, you know, the. <laughs> CDC and the FDA are basically there to protect profits and not protect you. I'm not going to put all the blame on them. At the end of the day, their business and their their supplying and demand for essentially lazy medical treatment. So uh, it's kind of society's problem as well. I think more autism and more testosterone are our best chance of fixing that system. At least from what I read on Twitter from people like you, people like Grimhood, just all of these health accounts, it's you just don't want to go into the hospital unless you absolutely have to. And there's a thousand things you can do to prevent you from going to the hospital that you can do every single day. And that's where your focus should be. Yeah, absolutely. If you go in the hospital, you might never come out. I mean, medical malpractice is one of the leading, leading causes of death. So there's something to be said about avoiding the hospital. That's that's largely up to you. I mean, if you get in an accident and it's not your fault, there's nothing you can do about that. But if you're killing yourself slowly with alcohol, uh, fucking cake, you know, your vices, that's completely on you. And you have to uh, be willing to accept the fact that your lifestyle is going to probably end you up in the hospital sooner rather than later. Yep, I think I think that was pretty well said. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to, to touch on or discuss? So when we were talking about choline and acetylcholine and how that can make you learn better, mm-hmm. remember things more, focus better, I left off on Alpha GPC and I wanted to quickly bring a couple of other over-the-counter things to everybody's attention so um alpha gpc like we mentioned it increases the release of acetylcholine in the brain but another pathway that we could take towards increasing acetylcholine in the brain without stimulating the release is through the use of acetylcholinesterase inhibitors so these essentially inhibit the enzyme acetylcholinesterase that break down acetylcholine in your brain and there, there's a bunch of them, right? So there's Huberdine, which comes from a Chinese plant. You can get that on Amazon. It's very potent. Um, that has more relaxing effect to it. So you can actually take that before you go to bed, and that'll increase your REM sleep. It'll give you more vivid dreams. Your memories are consolidated during uh, REM sleep. So that's going to help you retain more information that you try to learn that day for regular use during the day in performance enhancement, you have Bacopa monieri, uh, Ginkgo biloba, and you have Cognance too, 
which is this new patented type of supplement mixture, which includes the copamoniary, but it also has a higher concentration of something called adalin lactone, which interestingly enough, this one compound agonizes the 5-HT2A serotonin receptors exactly like something, you know, a psilocybin or an LSD microdose would do. So you get the microdosing benefits from taking that as well. Very cool. And you would recommend, just on another topic, people should microdose things like psilocybin. Exactly recommend it. I'll be fair. We haven't studied psilocybin in a long time just because there's actual federal laws prohibiting us from studying it because it's a schedule one substance. Uh, so we don't fully understand all of its mechanisms of actions, but there is something to be said about psilocybin, microdosing, and LSD. Um, it can actually give you a lot of the benefits of an SSRI without any of the typical negatives that you experience with SSRIs like sexual dysfunction or the brain zaps or the terrible withdrawals. I'm telling you, everyone I know is doing it. So I don't know. It still freaks me out. I'm just, I'm so afraid of drugs. The word drugs has a lot of negative to it. Um, and sometimes you think about probably San Francisco and some dude who's probably shitting in the street while banging some fentanyl or heroin in public. And that's what we think when we say the word drugs, but anything that alters your biology or chemistry can become as drugs. The morning coffee is a drug. What I like and what drugs I like to take are performance-enhancing drugs or quality of life enhancing drugs, stuff that's going to make you perform better, either physically, mentally, maybe even in the bedroom, make you live longer, and overall just improve the quality of your life. Uh, and stuff where the positives far outweigh the negatives, I would definitely categorize mushrooms and LSD as a performance-enhancing drug, as long as you're using it in the microdose, right? If you use them in the actual tripping dosages, there's a lot of benefits to that too, but then there's actual real risks. We aren't aware of any major risks from microdosing, and it doesn't seem like there are major risks. If you do a true microdose, um, what's probably going to happen is if you do it acutely, just here and there, you're going to get like a little bit of a dopamine and glutamate boost, so you're going to focus better. Uh, but if you do it long-term, you're going to have an upregulation of neurotrophic factors in the brain, which, by the way, that's exactly what SSRIs do and why they even work in some people is because after six months of being on SSRIs, your neurotrophic factors like BDNF and NGF, for example, that are responsible for the growth of new brain cells or the, um, the growth maturation or repair of existing brain cells, elevating those neurotrophic factors is what cures depression. We now know that serotonin itself does not improve depression and a lack of serotonin does not cause depression. That whole chemical imbalance theory is not valid even in the mainstream, right? So we do have a neurotrophic factor theory of depression and it seems to be quite spot on because everything else from nootropics to microdosing um, that increases neurogenesis and neuroplasticity also seems to have an antidepressant effect. So you're basically getting smarter. You're improving your brain's ability to adapt to new situations, mindsets, learn new things and be open to new experiences. You're improving your overall cognitive function and you're getting a mood boost and an antidepressant and anxiolytic effect from that. So that's why personally, if I had to take one thing for an antidepressant purpose, it would be, you know, a psilocybin or an LSD microdose or a nootropic that 
effectively does the same thing. Maybe I'll give it a try. My mom would kill me, but maybe I'll give it a try. We'll never know. Well, if you want to give it a try in like a sort of white hat, safe, natural way, you should look up cognance because um, it's legal, natural. It hits the same receptors and provides a lot of the same benefits as microdosing. And you can buy it with your mom's credit card right now on Shrovix <laughs> Maybe I will. It'll probably be much more fun if I would. Thank you so much for coming on. You were an absolute wealth of knowledge. And I think the way that you explained some very detailed chemistry, I could follow it, which means you explained it very well. Um, so for everyone who's listening, where could they find some of your content? Where do you want to direct them right now? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter. It's at BowtieUM. Long story. Uh, I used to be Bowtie Ubermensch, which if you don't know, that essentially means superhuman or superman. Um, Bowtie Biohacker as a handle was changed, so that's why I still have that. But you can also find me on Instagram at Bowtie Biohacker as well. I'll be releasing infographs and videos there, and you can find, you know, shit posts, memes, and I can Thank you so much for listening. This has been yet another episode of Common Sense. If you liked the conversation, please consider hitting that follow button on Spotify. Oh, and tell everyone you've ever met to do the same. And while you're feeling generous, why not subscribe to my YouTube channel? I promise I've ridiculed at least one of the identity groups you dislike. You have a great day now.